0: Good morning church, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1 this morning, if you want to turn in your Bible there. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed." There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was the daughter of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as a priest before God in the order of his division... According to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the Lord, to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord, and Zacharias said to the angel, "How shall I know this? for I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years and the angel answered and said to him, "I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings, but behold, you will make you will be mute and not." Able to speak until the days these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zacharias and marvelled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them, and they perceived that he had a, that he had had a vision in the temple, for he beckoned them, he beckoned to them, and remained speechless. So it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, that he departed to his own house. Now after those days his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me, in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among people. We're going to jump over to verse 57 in chapter 1. Luke chapter one fifty seven. Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. And when her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father Zacharias. His mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. But they said to her, There is one among there is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. So they made signs to his father. What would he have him called? And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, saying, His name is John. So they all marveled. Immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, praising God. Then fear came on all who dwelt around them, and all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him you guys pray with me god we just thank you for your word lord we just thank you for your finished work on the cross lord we thank you for the the things that you had men write down lord that we can know the truths that you've uh, laid out for us god we just pray that your spirit would fill this place would fill jackie and and that you would touch our hearts and teach us this morning and show us what we can learn from the birth of john and the work that he did as a as a forerunner for you, preparing the way for you to come and save us, God. We just thank you again for your word and for this time to learn from you. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: I know this might be shocking for those of you who have been doing two or three words at a time with us through the Bible study in James. That we're doing so many verses. But uh, Luke, in case you didn't know this, wrote more words in the New Testament than anybody else. He, His book, the book of Luke, is the longest book in the Bible. And if you put Luke and Acts together, he at least equals Paul. If you're just counting word count. So it's, it's kind of exciting to, to get an opportunity to take a look at this man, Luke. Do you ever wonder where he came from? I mean, most church tradition says he's not a Jew. And I would tend to agree with it. I, I, I think, at best, Luke was a God-fearer. You guys know what a God-fearer was? A God-fearer was a Gentile who basically hung out with the Jews. They liked the teachings. They, they understood that, uh, that Yahweh was the, the God that they wanted to worship. But they stopped just short of circumcision. And they kind of struggle with that idea. That for some of you, you would understand. Uh, I might struggle with that too. I didn't get to pick. So, but when we when we come to this section of Luke, man, there's some exciting things that we can see. If he's a Gentile, he's the only Gentile writer, and he writes to a specific audience. It's kind of exciting to see the audience that he is writing to. As he's writing to he. He titles and we're going to look at the, the introduction in a minute, but we look at it and he's, he writes to Most Excellent Theophilus, right? Most Excellent Theophilus. And Theophilus, we don't really know anything about him, there's a lot of tradition that goes here and there with Theophilus, but if we look at his name, his name means friend of God. And to me it just kind of smells like he's writing to God-fearers, other Gentiles like him. Other guys that were close but not in, you guys get what I'm saying, that, that had heard some of the teachings and, and so as a general rule of thumb, a lot of people look at that as, as uh, Luke's audience, that Luke's audience is, is uh, focused, if you will, on, on or toward the Gentiles. When we look at Luke, here's what we know about him for sure. Luke was with Paul from Acts 16, guaranteed, maybe sooner but we can prove it from Acts 16. He's with them in Troas, and we see Paul refer to him three times. He says in Colossians 4:11, given a list of the guys who are sending greetings. He says, "This Jesus, who is called justice, and and there are these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God." That's a way of saying those are the Jews. I just listed for you the Jews. What's the next name? He does. And then the, he says that, uh, and they have been a comfort to me. But then he goes on in Colossians chapter 4 to say, and Luke, my brother. It's differentiating between Luke and the, those of the circumcision. Philemon 23, 24 says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greeting to you. And so does Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. There's Luke again. Hanging out with Paul. 2 Timothy 4.11 Luke alone is with me, Paul says. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. So, at least three times we have Paul referring to Luke. Luke was with him on the missionary journeys. We know Luke is the author of the book of Acts. And this gospel that we're going to be taking a look at today, as we look at uh, the gospel of Luke. Now, Luke does some things and focuses on some things nobody else does. For, for years, there's been this concept called uh, uh, what theologians call a synoptic problem. I don't think it's a problem, but that's how they, that's, that's they uh, delineated it. They, they call it the synoptic problem. They want to know where the synoptics got all their source material. So they have this idea, something called the primacy of Mark, which means Mark was written first, and everybody used Mark as an outline and built off of Mark, and and then emphasized some stories that were more important to them and their audience. Right? It kind of makes sense that uh, they wouldn't be exactly the same, wasn't the same audience, nor did they have the same uh, um, view, vision, the idea, the concept for which they were sharing uh, one story or another. Um, Some call it uh, the the primacy of Q, Q being a source we don't have anymore that uh, is the outline that everybody used. But this is what guys do when they have so much mental power and not enough things to do with it. So... They sit around and contemplate all of how to work out all these problems. I think it's a lot simpler than that. I think Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then later on John, they sit down and they begin to put together this because up until the time of the writing of these Gospels, it's all going out by the disciples, right? They're going out and telling their story. Eyewitness accounts are out going out saying, hey, this is what happened, this is what happened. But as time goes on, you know, one gets killed here. And they start to realize, man, we're getting older, we better write some of this stuff down. So they began to sit down and write it down. You know the amazing thing to me? There's there's lots of apocryphal gospels, if you will, that appear on the scene, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th century. But you know that every time they find a codex, a codex is a gathering together of the, the books of the Bible... The oldest codexes of the Bible gathered together, goes way back, 2nd, 3rd century, long, long, long time ago, they never have any other Gospels than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they always have them like that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Isn't that amazing? And we go to these codexes, it's it's never Matthew, Mark, and something else, Bartholomew, or or the Gospel of Thomas, or one of the other ones that come later on, it was always those four, always those four going out into the churches and being established. So when we look at Luke, Luke we're going to see nine miracles that the others don't cover. They're going to, he's going to talk about nine things that the other ones don't cover. Why? Because he's got a specific audience in mind and a specific purpose. Luke's purpose as he writes to them is to tell them that Jesus Christ came to save the lost. And you're going to see that emphasized in the miracles. And you're also going to see 13 parables that that the other Gospels don't have, that Luke focuses on, because that's his point. It doesn't mean that the other ones got it wrong, guys. The other ones are writing for a different purpose, right? Are everybody tracking with me? They're, they're, Mark is writing to slaves in Rome, right? He's, he's, he's got his, his audience. His is the shortest. Quick, get to the point. Get it done. Let's go. Got to go to work. We got, we got Matthew. Who's he written to? He's written to the Jews. It's describing Jesus Christ as the King of the Jews. Each one has a focus, and that focus kind of delineates how it's put together. The other thing we recognize about Luke is Luke is not in a strict chronology. It doesn't, it's not a timeline. We in the West think timeline when we think of stories, right? First this, then this, then this. But that's not how they thought. They thought about their points. What's my point? What, what miracles remind me of this point? What miracles or, or parables remind me of this point? And so they're grouped together in that way. So we want to be able to recognize and see those things as we work our way through. So we'll begin today, and we'll see how much of this we actually get to bite off. But we're going to start in the introduction. First four verses is the introduction to the Gospel of Luke. And it begins with this phrase, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, they have delivered them to us. What's he saying? He's saying, look, I want to tell you guys about the past because that's where this gospel finds its foundation in the guys who have gone before. In those who have written, in those who have taught, in those who have evangelized, in those who brought the stories through. And Luke is saying, man, all this that came through, I want to make sure that that we get an opportunity to write this down. And thank God he did. So he writes these things down so that we can understand. These things are based, he says, literally on the essentials of our faith. He says, these things that have been accomplished, done among us, completed, perfected. They're, these are all things that we have seen. In fact, the eyewitnesses, they were here telling us these stories. So he focuses in on this ground based on the eyewitness accounts. When we look at this, we probably see the Gospel of Luke somewhere around 60 A.D., within 30 years of the death of Christ. The next verse, verse 3, he goes on, "...it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely..." For some time past, to write an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. I think this is where we get the the view, the picture of who he's writing to. He wants us to know he's writing to Theophilus, friend of God. But he put a little phrase before. Did you see it? Most excellent. You know the Bible only uses that phrase of two other people. Felix and Festus. They were governors. So probably the idea is whoever Theophilus was had some kind of role within the government, some kind of responsibility, and so he's using this title, Most Excellent. In the book of Acts, he doesn't use Most Excellent anymore. I think probably by that time, whoever Theophilus was had a pretty good uh, uh, relationship with the Lord, and he didn't care about titles so much. He, in, in Acts, he just says, Oh, Theophilus. The story continues. Let me tell you what's going on. So we see the target, the group for whom he's writing. And we see the plan by which the gospel was initiated so that they could reach out to men like Theophilus. This is the goal. Verse four, he says that you may have certainty considering or concerning the things that you have been taught. This is the purpose. The purpose behind a book that you may have certainty to the things you've been taught. There's some, some ground, some groundwork has been laid for Theophilus. That's why I say he's a God-fearer. Somebody who's, who's familiar with the, <clears throat> with Judaism and some of their concepts and, and principles. And so it's, he's not, he's not having the, to re-go, go over all that ground. He can lay some of that out for him as they, as they move forward. And so we see he has some basis. But the key that we're going to see as we move forward is this idea. And that is the importance of faith in God's Word. The importance of faith in what God's doing in your life. How many of you guys are okay with what God's doing right now? How many might be struggling with what God's doing right now? We've all find ourselves in one place or another at one time or another, don't we? But the question for us all is the same. Just as we ended with the song, It Is Well, is the idea of am I able to look to God and say, God, this this is part of your plan and purpose for my life. Can we submit to it? Can we say, yeah, God, you have a plan for my old age. God, you have a plan for my young age. God, you have a plan for this crazy chaos I find myself in. Can we understand and recognize that God has a purpose. Can we hold to the promises that God's word says? Because that's immediately where Luke's going to go in verse 5. In verse 5, immediately he's going to go to this idea, the importance of having faith in God's word, having faith in what God has seen. So he's going to focus on the circumstances of John the Baptist's birth. So I just cut that section out. Don't worry, I'm not skipping any verses. We'll do them all. But I just want us to see the beginning and, and, and not totally the end, but the beginning and at least the middle of that, the birth story for John the Baptist. And as John the Baptist's birth comes, I want you to, to realize that there are seven things that we can learn in regard to the faith of Zechariah. and I hope I hope we'll allow God's Spirit to speak to us as we take a look at them. It says in verse 5, In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. And her name was Elizabeth. And we just read the story. We know what Zechariah is going to do. And here's what I want you to understand. His religious ancestry did not guarantee his faith. He and his wife were both PKs, priest kids. Both of them were in the lineage of the priesthood. Both of them would have been as religious as you can possibly imagine. Yet he's still going to struggle in faith. So our religious heritage doesn't guarantee it. We see that he was uh, of the division of Abijah. Abijah was the 8th division of the 24 divisions of the priesthood. Each one would have a period of time in which they ministered in the temple. He was of Abijah. He is of the eighth. But look at verse 6. And they were both righteous before God, walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So his godly actions did not guarantee his faith. He was doing the things, right? That's important. We want to serve God. We want to do things in service of Him. But His service didn't guarantee his faith. His religious ancestry didn't guarantee his faith, that he would be faithful to what God told him. That he would be able to respond in faith to what God laid out for him. Look at verse 7. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. That might have been the problem. You ever been disappointed with God's plan for your life? With what God's doing, how God's moving, what God's going to accomplish in your life? Did you ever think, you know, when I sat down and planned out my life, this is not how I saw it? I always think of Daniel when I think about that. Daniel is a teenager, probably in his early teens, being kidnapped, literally, from his family's home, never see his mom and dad again, or any aunts and uncles, nobody. That's over. Taken to the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. Raised to do or be whatever he wants to be. Scripture says he was made a eunuch. You take that for what you think. All I know is Daniel was never married. Never had a child. Never had grandkids. I don't think when Daniel was a teenager thinking about his life, that's the turn he thought it would take. Yet when God spoke to Daniel, he said this, Daniel, you are much beloved of God. Sometimes it's hard to hear God say that when the things in your life aren't exactly how you thought they should be. And I would imagine for Zechariah, especially in that culture, for Zachariah and Elizabeth, it was a it was a disgrace not to be able to have kids. And I bet that was a little bit of a hang-up for them, right? They kind of threw themselves into the religious aspect of their lives. Maybe they threw themselves into service. They threw themselves into all of these things. But the Scripture lays out for us, they were advanced in years. Time was past. So even in their old age, they hadn't learned everything they needed to learn so that they could respond in faith. And I think we have to ask ourselves sometimes, I think, I think ending on Horatio's song, or at least an adaptation of his song, from a man who wrote a song based on the loss of his entire family, who could pen the words, It is well with my soul to realize the call that God's word is laying on us because as we begin the story and he's saying God fears he's saying guys who are out there you're close and you're not you're not all the way in yet maybe what what I want you to understand what I want you to know is God's good and his plan is good but it might not be the same as yours might not look the same I had to decide a long time ago that I was going to be okay with God's plan. Nobody could really tell me why Joe screamed so much when he was little or why he was always in trouble. But when he was three years old, they gave us a diagnosis. And from the day they gave that diagnosis, I knew that Joe was going to live with me his entire life. And I don't know how much he's ever going to understand about God's Word. We, we do the best we can to teach him. I don't know if he's ever going to go beyond where he is or what he is now, but I had to mourn the loss of the son I thought I had so I could begin to enjoy the son I do have. I had to say... well God you have a purpose I've seen an amazing purpose in Joe Joe's taught me things I could have never learned any other way so I can recognize that but maybe you can't maybe wherever you are and whatever's going on in your life you don't see the silver lining you don't see the whys or behind the story I just want you to know you still are much beloved of God just like Daniel was And you got to put that bitterness to bed if you want to be able to respond in faith to the things that God wants to do in your life. In essence, we got to take ourselves off the crown, guys. we got to take ourselves off the th- throne. we got to say, it's not me. That's hard for us in the United States of America because we pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We make things happen. And the reality is we sound a lot more like Nebuchadnezzar than we do like Jesus Christ is not the kingdom that I have built. This is the kingdom that God has. And it's the same way with my life. And I think this is an issue for them. So even in his old age, even his religious upbringing, even all the service that he did, did not guarantee his faith, that he would respond in faith. In fact, I think his old age becomes an obstacle. If you look at verse 18... We'll come right back to verse 8 in a second. It says, Zechariah said to the angel, How can I do this? I'm an old man. Basically, Zechariah is saying, It's too late for me now. Maybe you feel that way. It's not ever too late. It's never too late. It's always too soon to quit. You and God make a majority. And you can accomplish anything he has planned in purpose for your life. In verse 8, he goes on, he says, Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the peoples were praying outside at the hour of incense. So he's going about his priestly activity, but that didn't guarantee his faith. He was praying. Now, I believe he's praying for the nation. This is not when he's praying to have a child. <clears throat> I would imagine they had given up that prayer. I'd think he's looking for the redemption of Israel. He's looking for the deliverance of Messiah. That would be the, the typical prayer that they would be bringing at a time like that. But it's the most important time of his life. What you need to understand in this story, that's the only time ever he's going to be in that place. That's it. One man, one time, one life. That's how often you got to go in that room. 24 courses, hundreds of priests in each course. Yeah, if you are lucky, you got to do one time in your life. So this is the most monumentous occasion of this man's life. In the most holy place, standing there offering up incense to God. The people outside praying for their nation it's a beautiful picture the people praying for their nation he is gathered there once in a lifetime verse 11 says and there appeared to him an angel standing on the right side of the altar of incense and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him so an angel appears but the angel didn't guarantee his faith either did it the angel appeared oh if i could just see with my eyes You know, Jesus told a story about that. He said, literally, even if someone rose from the dead, if you won't believe the words I say, you won't believe even if someone raises from the dead. And that's true. You ever watch people just ignore the plain truth in front of their face? No matter how many times you say it? Or no matter how many times you show them? Yeah. People don't have a hard time. Unbelief is not something we struggle with. We don't, have, we don't have to work unbelief up. Seems like unbelief just comes sprouting out of us all over the place. And so the same is here. The angel appears. The angel standing there. Now here's what you guys need to realize. They hadn't seen an angel for 400 years. They hadn't heard a peep from God for 400 years. They hadn't had a prophet give this phrase, thus saith the Lord, for 400 years. You don't think every priest, when he went in there to pray, had hoped he would be the one that God would speak to? You don't think every priest that was in that place was thinking, man, I, I hope this is my moment. I hope I get to be the one that the Lord is going to break his silence to. Maybe the Lord is going to speak to you. You don't think they thought like that? So when an angel appeared, trust me, Zechariah didn't have a hard time being afraid or having the fear of the Lord. Those are two things we see every time an angel's on the scene. Right, I don't care how tough you are. You win. You're the king of tough. But when you see the angel, you'll find out that you're not as tough as he is. Because everybody reacts the same way. Woe is me. And they're on their face. And so you have the same response to him. But the angel's appearance didn't guarantee he would respond in faith. Look at verse 13. The angel said to him, first words, 400 years from God. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Which prayer? Maybe both. In verse 68, we won't get there today, but in verse 68 when Zechariah talks about the praise, praising God for what he's done, he praises God for the redemption of Israel. So he recognizes this is the beginning of the coming of Messiah. He recognizes that his son is the Elijah who is to come. He recognizes those fulfillments and he praises God for the deliverance of Israel. He says, your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you will call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. For God to speak for the first time in 400 years. That's when verse 18 comes. So even the announcement of the angel did not guarantee. Zechariah would respond in faith. The next thing Zechariah says is. I am old. And the angel says. I am Gabriel. Gabriel. Man, don't miss that. That's that's some powerful stuff. I am old. Oh, I am Gabriel. When we look here, it says that that this child, John, he's not going to touch strong drink. And so a lot of people point to this as a Nazarite vow. It's missing the other two components of the Nazarite vow. He may have been Nazarite. We don't know. Can't say definitively. But this certainly is a part of what a Nazarite vow would look like, that he would not touch strong drink. In Judges thirteen seven, we see it. It says, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child will be a Nazarite to God." From the womb to the day of his death. So it's not unheard of. It may be, this may be what points to that idea. But we also see in here echoes of the great prophets of old. The great prophets of old. You see Samson, you see as a judge, you see Samuel as the last judge and the first prophet. We see the Lord moving in, in powerful ways, saying this phrase, He will be filled with the Holy Spirit from conception. He'll have the Holy Spirit in the womb. That was was something that a prophet had. A prophet had, and I'm talking big P prophet, okay? Don't get confused with little P prophet. Little P prophet is someone who prophesies or can speak forth the Word of God, just like we're sharing the Word of God today. But a big P prophet, he met face to face with God. Yeah? Ezekiel would say things like, and I've shared this with you before, the Word of the Lord came to me and touched me. That's not a thought coming into his head. Who's the word of the Lord? Yeah. He came to me. So when they would say the phrase, the word of the Lord has come to me, it came to mean a little bit more than what it, what it means maybe to you and I. Big P prophet. These guys filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb, called out by God to be uh, used in a special way. This echoes of the prophets of old. In fact, most will point to John the Baptist as the last And the picture of the great prophets of the Old Testament, and we see the echo of this—the call to repentance. Which of the great prophets of old did not call to repentance? Many. Isaiah, what did he do? Call to repentance. Jeremiah, what did he do? Call to repentance. Ezekiel, call to repentance. Nahum, call to repentance. What is the point of the prophet? Call the people back to the Lord. Tell them, hey, you have strayed, you've gone away, come back to the Lord. That's what John the Baptist is going to do, right? He's going to stand in the wilderness and he's going to prepare the way for the coming of the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. He's going to announce the coming of the Great One. He's going to call the people to repentance. Fulfillment of what Malachi said. Before that great and terrible day of the Lord, Elijah would come. And what would he do? Turn the hearts of the children back to their fathers. In other words, that children would begin to walk the way their fathers, the, the guys in past, the heroes. They'll start to walk like them. They'll start to turn their way back to the Lord. So there's incredible things that he's told, yet none of these things, none of this good news, none of this exciting Things that this angel who just appeared and is standing—you got to picture it on the right hand of the, the golden altar, the altar of incense, in the holy place, right in front of the veil, into the holy of holies. And here is an angel standing there, telling him all these things. But that didn't guarantee his faith. It didn't guarantee that he was going to be able to respond to what God was doing. So then Zechariah said to the angel, "How can I know this? I am old." My wife is old. He throws her under the bus too. I'm old and she's old. Now let me ask you a question. Zachariah is a priest. Yes? He never heard of Abraham? You guys have heard of Abraham, haven't you? Uh, Wasn't he old? What about Sarah? Wasn't she old? Holy cow, you're kidding me. You mean God has done this before? My goodness. That's just crazy talk. You know the parents of Samson? They were barren. God gave them a child. Hannah, the mom of Samuel, barren. God gave her a child. What about, uh, let me think, Rebecca, Rachel? All were barren. God brought them a child. This is a priest. He knows all this, right? But he's still struggling in unbelief. I'll come. Because he's not okay. He's not okay with the turns of life. He's not okay with how things have come together. He's not okay that he watched all his friends enjoy their younger days with their children. He's not okay with how God's plan for his life looked. And so he just wants to quit. He wants to retire. He wants to bow out. He just wants to fade away into that golden sunrise. And i had done my stuff. I served the Lord, and I was a priest, and I fulfilled all these things that I was supposed to fulfill. So that's good. I did pretty good. And and I just kind of made peace that this is not going to be a part of my life. So when the angel Gabriel is standing in front of him, didn't guarantee his faith. The promise didn't guarantee his faith. So Zechariah says, I'm old. And the angel says, I'm Gabriel. I just love it. I could s- s- spin out on that for a long time. I won't. Gabriel says, I stand in the presence of God. Where are you standing, Zechariah? In the presence of God, it's all good. In the presence of God, I know this one phrase that makes it all okay. And once upon a time, in a a Nissan pickup in the middle of the desert in uh, uh, God-forsaken wilderness of California, I was driving down the freeway and I was asking God why everything in my life was going wrong. And i finally trying to follow Him, and I'm finally trying to focus on Him, and most of my life I wasted or spent doing other things. I'm, I'm finally doing all this, God, and everything's going wrong. Every, step, every doorknob I turned was a mess. Everything I did was a problem. And I'm sitting there in my truck, and I'm whining, and I'm crying to God, Lord, why, why, why? And I just heard this phrase in my mind. Do you love me more than these? I know from that point it was easy. God, I love you more than I love my children. Well, that's a rough one. God, I love you more than my plans. God, I love you more than my purpose. God, I love you more than my riches. God, I love you more than all my stuff. God, I love you, Period. God was whispering that because, you know, before I ever knew God, you know what He said to me? He said, Jackie, don't you know that I love the world so much I gave Him my son? Will you give me yours? Will you give me your children or lack thereof? Will you give me whatever the disappointments in your life are? Will you let them all be mine? We just give them to me. We just lay it all down so that when the angel appears, when the gospel is presented, when faith comes booming through the clouds and you hear the voice of God in your mind just shouting at you, that you can respond in faith. And not have the bitterness, the struggle that Zechariah had. Gabriel said, I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you. And bring you this good news, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And then, pooh, he's gone. Crazy thing is, in Ezekiel chapter 3, God said the same thing to Ezekiel. Ezekiel, so that you'll know that I'm with you and that these are my words that I'm giving you. The only time you'll be able to talk is when I let you speak. The rest of the time you'll be mute. So every time Isaiah was speaking, he was saying what God wanted him to say. The rest of the time he could not talk at all. Until like chapter 33. That's a long time. (laughs) 3 to 33. Until the, the destruction of Jerusalem was complete and then God let his tongue uh, move, let him speak. So you see, again, another Old Testament prophetical sign for Zechariah. So we see Zechariah struggling in his faith, and, and Gabriel does this miracle. This miracle is what we would call a punitive miracle. It's a sign gift. Okay, I'll, I'll give you a sign that these things are going to happen. You're mute. By the way, that word is the word kophos. It means mute, deaf, dumb, all of it. In a moment, we're going to see the people try to talk to Zechariah. What are they going to do? They're going to talk? What's it say they did? Well, they made signs. They wrote things out for him. Why would they do that if his ears worked? They could have just talked to him, couldn't they? Unless he's deaf too. Mute, deaf, and dumb. If you won't believe God's word, listen, if you won't believe what God's promises are for you, if you don't believe what God lays out for you, you too will be deaf and dumb. You won't have anything to say. And you're not going to hear anything good. There's nothing, never any good whispers from the pit of despair. Never any. But when you take that pit of despair and you wrap it up in a pretty little bow and you give it to the Lord and say, Lord, this is yours. This is what you gave me. And he says thanks, just like as if you were giving him anything else. That's what he wants. Now you can hear what it is that God is trying to say, what God is trying to do. We want to see the importance. So he is finally afflicted, and his affliction brings about faith. Six failures to bring faith, the affliction brought it. You'll see. So we see this faith working out in the life of his wife. Look at it in verse twenty four. After those days his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden. Why? Why'd she hide for five months? This woman gotta be as happy as you can be. What'd she hide for? Is it real? Not real. Surely the other shoe's going to drop. I don't know. Bible doesn't tell us. just says that she hid for five months. Now by five months, she ought to be showing real good, right? So as soon as she's showing real good, a lot of women, when they show real good, start to go into captivity. Not her, man. She starts showing real good. She wants everybody to see. Hey, check this out. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach, my disgrace among people. Look at what Elizabeth does. First, she, she talks about how God is, has concern over her. Look what the Lord has done to me. Look what the Lord has done to me. Look what God has given me. Her, her eyes were on the concern of the Lord, how the Lord had moved in her life. Then it was on his care. In the days that he looked upon me or visited me. And the days that the Lord has visited me. It's a phrase that is often used throughout scripture. The idea that God cares for me. God's concern for me. And then ultimately, what do we see? He's removed my disgrace. God's compassion. God's compassion. You see his concern, care, and compassion. My question, were those three things not true before she had a child? Were those not true? did Did God still have concern for her? Did God still care for her? Did God still have compassion for her? Does God still care and is concerned and have compassion for you, even if the things in your life aren't working out right now? Or is it only if things happen the way we want it? Is it only if it all comes together? Is it only if my wife finally... Uh, understands I truly love her and comes back? Or when my husband understands and gives his life to the Lord and he comes back? Or is it only if God is willing to do the healing? Or if it's only if God does all these other things? Is that the only time those three things are true? Because the eyes of faith can see that before, during, and after. After. And the miracle is not required. Do you know that God loves you? Right where you're at. He cares about you. Right in the midst of whatever you're going through. Do you know it? Because you can. You can know it. But what you can not do is hold on to bitterness, anger, wrath, malice, slander... All that nonsense. You can't hold on to all that. God says you got to let it go. you got to give it to Him. And you want to see with the eyes of faith, it says, even in this place, even as a young teenage boy, becoming a eunuch, God loves me. He said, I'm much beloved of God. Even when family's not going to work out the way that it's supposed to, God loves me. Even if she or he doesn't love me like I love them. God loves you. Even if the circumstances of life don't all wrap up in a nice, pretty little bow. You are much beloved of God. And the circumstances we go through in our life is not the primary way that God shows us he loves us. This is how we know God loves us. When I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. When I was separated from God, He made a way. That's how I know God loves me. And one day, standing before that judgment seat, we'll realize how valuable that gift was. Though now we may not see it as clearly as we will. There's nothing better than, what Christ has provided for us well let 's look at the faith of the friends real quick verse fifty seven it says "Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. she bore a son, and her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and what they do. They rejoiced, they saw what God had done, the joy in her in her life. And they rejoice. That's how we're supposed to respond when God moves. You know, I've always wondered this one thing. You guys know the story, right? Where the children of Israel are are caught between a rock and a hard place. Overlooking the Red Sea. Pharaoh's coming down on them. The Red Sea's in front of them. And they all begin to complain to the Lord. God, did you bring us out here just to kill us? I wonder what would have happened if they'd have sang the song... Praising God for his deliverance instead. They're going to sing the song later, right? The sea is going to part. They're going to walk across. God's going to deliver them. They're going to sing the song of deliverance. But didn't God say he was going to deliver them? Didn't God say he was going to take them out? See, even the miracles don't guarantee our faith. Faith is guaranteed when you and I, we make this decision that says, everything that I am, I'm ever going to be, everything my life is or my life is ever going to be, all of that belongs to you, God. And you give it. And then whatever happens in life, happens in life. And we, we trust God, we trust His word, what He said. Then we can sing the song of deliverance before deliverance comes. What would that have been like? How much more glorious would that moment have been? So friends are rejoicing with her. But how many times did she weep over not having a child? How many times did she weep over God's plans in her life not being what she thought they were going to be? And as she was weeping in that moment, where were the friends? they encouraging her? Could they? I don't know. I don't know. But until we take all that stuff, what life is, what life's going to be, how life is in reality, and we lay all that stuff down at the feet of our Lord and Savior, and we say, it's all yours. all," And we mean, it's all yours, Jesus, not mine. Not about me. I did the about me thing, and it just was kind of a mess, dude. It was not good. I ran it. Some of you got enough experience in here to say you ran your life too. Was it better, different? No, it's about the same, right? Far better when I left it in the hands of Jesus. Because when I left it in the hands of Jesus, you know what I had? All the hope. Even though bad things still happen, I got hope. Hope that God... Will deliver just like His Word declares. Hope that when Jesus said, "See, I make all things new," that that day, that moment, when I look into His face and I hear those words, is going to be so much joy that you can't even begin to understand it. And it's not worthy to be traded for the suffering that we see today. They rejoiced with her. They rejoiced. But then look at the circumcision. It says, "On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child." And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother said, no, it should be John. So they said to her, none of your relatives is called John. So they made signs to the father. See, he couldn't hear. Inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet. And he wrote down, his name shall be John. John means the Lord is gracious. The Lord is good. Same question. Was the Lord good before John? Was the Lord good after? Does, does the Lord change his emotions? One day he's good, the next day he's bad. You know, he does. He's always good, isn't he? The Lord is gracious. The Lord is good. In verse 64 it says, And immediately his mouth was open, his tongue was loosed, and he spoke. What did he say? What did he think the first thing he said was? Oh man, praise the Lord. He said, Bless, he just blessed God. He blessed God. And as soon as he started blessing God, all them people got the fear of the Lord in them. Yeah, you know the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord. Whoo whoa! What just happened? What is going on? God hasn't spoke. God hasn't moved. God hasn't done anything for 400 years. And now, this has been kind of a whole weird deal with Zachariah since he went into the temple. And he hasn't been able to talk. And this is kind of reminded me of Ezekiel. And now all of a sudden he can speak and he's glorifying God and he's praising the Lord. And he's calling out on the name. It says, fear came on all the neighbors. And all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts and said, What is this child going to be like? Do we all wonder that? Every time we look at a baby? What's this child going to be like? For the hand of the Lord was with him. You know, he was going to be a little disappointing to Zechariah. He's not going to be a priest. You know, he's not going to hang out in the priest's homes. He's not going to live in that upper side of town. The Bible says he's going to eat locusts and honey. He's going to dress like a wild man. He's not going to have the haircut everybody wants him to have. He's not going to have the kind of facial hair everybody wants him to have. Catching the digs there? <laughs> He's not going to do the things everybody thinks he ought to do. He's not going to wear the clothes everybody thinks he ought to wear. He's not going to have the message everybody thinks he ought to have. But man, he was God's man, wasn't he? Man. Do you believe the message of God? Can you hear it? Can you respond to it in faith? Can you let go of the Hurts of life. Because I know they're real. I'm not lying to you. I know it's real. There's people in here who have heartbreak beyond even what I can begin to imagine. But the promise of God to me is the same as the promise of God is for you. And if you let the disappointments of life get in the way, like Zechariah, you won't be able to see it. You won't be able to respond to it. So we have to deal with those. Because life is just like that, guys. Life is hard and God is good. And one day, it's all going to be worth it. One day, it's all going to be unbelievable. One day, you're looking to His eyes... And all those questions you sure you have to ask are all just going to fly away. What a glorious day that will be when He makes all things new. Believe Him. Amen? Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time, the opportunity we have to come to study. Lord, we thank you for the the truth of your word, God. And I know for some, maybe this is a hard thing, hard thing to see, hard thing to hear. But I want you to know it's a loving thing to see. And it's a loving thing to hear. I remember the day standing in my backyard in the dark, shaking my fist at God, asking him why. Why? That's what I said. (laughs) From the mouth of babes, he has perfected praise. And, you know, God answered me. He answered me. But even in the midst of all that, that, that answer didn't take away a choice I had to make. The choice I had to make was to say, man, I, I'm going to trust you in the good or the bad. I'm going to trust you no matter what it looks like. I'm going to trust you no matter how this ends. I'm going to trust you no matter where this journey goes. I'm putting it all in, everything. Every chip I got, I slide to the middle of the table and saying I'm all in. For you, Jesus, wherever you go, I go. Your people, my people. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. It's you and me till the wheels fall off. Man, God wants us to be to that place. He wants us to be in the place where by faith we can hear the promises of God. And when we hear those promises, we can say, yes, Lord, and amen, they're true. They're true even though my experience is hard. We can say, yes, Lord, and amen. They're, they're true and good and loving, and I see it, and I can sing the song of praise and salvation even before I see the waves begin to go down, before the floodwaters recede, before whatever event occurs. God, I pray that you would give us eyes that are able to see and respond in faith. That whatever it is that hinders our faith, Lord, we confess it. We repent of it. We rebuke it. And we step forward believing and trusting. For God is able. Lord, we lift this time to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.